Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of the Cathedral of Sport podcast today. And I tell you what, guys, it's going to be a real big treat today because we have on a very special guest from the football world. Hi, John Sitton. How are you? All right, Ash. Not bad, mate. Thanks for asking. Yeah. How's life been treating you since lockdown? Well, it's been tough because it probably contradicted a popular opinion or some opinion. Um, I like to get out and be among people and get a living, but it's, it's been very difficult. I've been um, I'm one of the few that, that we totally complied as a family, and I ain't been at work since March, really. Well, same here, John. I'm a I'm a chef by trade. It's, it's screwed me over big time, mate. That's why I've gone into this venture, really. But thank you for coming yeah. on the show. Anyway, let's talk about your football career and where it all started. You've played with Arsenal and you got noticed by Chelsea uh, in the last... We tried to do we tried to do this before, didn't we, John? And I uh, had a bit of teething problems with my sound and stuff like that. Uh, and you were telling me about your how you got noticed at Chelsea. Yeah, it's just uh, it's not not until you you get sort of the age I'm at now where you realise you know you come to realise how quickly things move and and how quickly things fly by. You know, the bottom line is it was more organic then, and uh, I just got me representative on this. And then after getting us good slatter and being let go by Arsenal after ten months. They were one of nine clubs. Uh, they actually wanted me to go back and sign schoolboy and apprentice. And uh, rather churlishly, I'd, I'd done the rounds of a few clubs and even turned down what was big money at the time from a couple because okay. I'd gone to Chelsea and enjoyed the atmosphere and the coaching so much. Even that was like the other, the other side of London in terms of like the training facilities. They were based in Mitchum then. It was a good hour and a half journey for me. Was that the old roads, John? The, the old, by the Naffy? Was that, was that what they were? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, but how how was it? How was it for a youngster at Chelsea in those days? There's some big characters around then. How was it quite daunting for you when you first went through the door there, or was it just take it like a duck to water? No, I'd say the the the, the, the former rather than the latter, probably because of you know the area I was from, the upbringing that I had. You know, I weren't really. I was probably socially awkward in terms of, uh, you know, walking into, a, into a, a new place for the first time. But slowly, slowly, you know, sort of you bed yourself in and get a feel for it. Yeah, the atmosphere, the atmosphere. Yeah, I'm saying the expression I'd probably use would be like uh, tainted love because the, the stuff that's come out since, and in my age group, I was one of the main players, you know, I had a, I had a lot of people contacting me uh, about the, the sex abuse allegations. So it was like, Right. It's going to sound slightly contradictory because it really was, by and large, you know, a great set of lads above and below and, and my age group itself. So it was you know, somewhat tarnished memory, really. But, I, you know, I, when it comes to me dealing with my own stuff, I'm, you know, again, I'm going to address it in book two and tell the story of how I laid down the marker to be left alone. And then, uh, you know, you sort of progress from schoolboy to apprentice to, in my case... Offered a four-year pro deal at 17 and a half. That's not, not bad. What was the money like then, John? Was it, you know, it, obviously they're, they're paid mega money now from the academies. And, you know, they're, they're, super, <laughs> they're, they're, they're superstars now before they're even superstars, if, if so yeah. to speak. What was it like? You had to yeah. graph for it back then, didn't you? It was, it was, a, it was a proper apprenticeship. Why, was it YTS back then? Nah, it was what they called an apprentice professional. But basically right, okay. it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was by another name, slave labour, you know. You had to do things like sweep the terraces, clean all the boots, you know, and, and in those days, like the pitches were like sort of quagmires, you know what I mean? 
you had to clean the boots, you had to lay out all the fresh kit, pick up the dirty kit, make sure it was all the right way around in its uh, separate piles, take it through to the laundry room. Then you had to clean all the, the shower facilities, the bathrooms, the dressing rooms, sweep them out and mop them, et cetera, et cetera. You know? So it was tantamount to slave labour. And then somewhere in between all of that, you, you sort of, you're trained and you had to try and find the energy to give of your best and I'm talking about not only the financial aspects in terms of being like very poorly paid, you know, it was seen as a chance, you know, to break away back in those days, you know, it was sort of our walk of life. People went one of three, one of three or four directions, you know, normally it was villainy, um, boxing, football or acting. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I was blessed with a bit of ability and, and a, more importantly, a great attitude and determination to try and break away from that. I think it'd be fair to say, you know, the, the, uh, the money was literally a negligible amount I mean I don't even know how we got how we got through it I think my first pay packet was 12 quid a week and then it rose to 16 pound in the second year and it, it led me to be you know to begin to question why it is I turned down you know significant inducements in terms of you know the old cliched brown envelope to sign for other clubs but I, I was or I am what I like to think I am a, a loyal person you know, I think it, I think that's a good grounding for youngsters. It's character building. Obviously, the money was crap, but they're a bit pampered these days. That's you know, you got to be a club man. You know, cleaning the boots of the senior pros and and sweeping the terraces and stuff like that. What, what do you think about the youngsters nowadays? It's it's not it's not an apprenticeship, is it? I'm a little bit conflicted. I mean, I think I think a lot of pluses to the system that we came through, but uh, I wouldn't want anyone to go through it. If I'm honest, I mean, disregarding the loyalty aspect in the money, you know, you you come. I came to realise too late, and I was told by what I regarded it's only my personal opinion one of life's very lucky boys Frank Clark he said the game's all about money and medals that's why I, I, I sarcastically said to him when he said it well I, you know it'd be nice to it'd be nice to get paid for it Frank you know with regards to the contract oh, yeah, he kept me on the same money for four years <laughs> and yet I was one of his best players uh, top defenders and his captain you know what I mean so that was a, a little bit con- so the point I'm making is I think youngsters should be given absolutely ample opportunity to make the most of their talents, which you can't do. Not only that, I mean, like just going quickly off at a tangent, we were never replenished. You know what I mean? So you, you basically, if if you got up early enough, you'd have a bowl of cereal and a cup of tea before you left home. And then you you do like hour and a half trip. In my case, you do all the shenanigans with regards to boots and kit and blah blah blah. After reporting to the ground, then dro- to, driving from the main ground to the training ground. Not so much as a glass of water or a bottle of Lucas Aid or you know one of these isotonic posh drinks they have now. And then you'd, uh, you'd do a, you know, a tantamount to nearly a two-hour session. Then you had to do the reverse of what you just done. And then, like, you know, there was no lunches laid on, nothing. I mean, it, there was even a, a mini documentary on social media recently with regards to 1976 when Chelsea were losing money and some of the players took a, a pay cut to help the club. Um, that, right. that's, the, that's the year I joined. That's the summer that I joined, summer of 76, it, it went in terms of full-time signing apprentice. The, the reverse of that... Conversely, what I'd say is I think like players should be given, young players should be given given ample opportunity to make the most of you know the talents that they've been uh, that they've got and that, that's been recognised. What I mean by that is all the stuff that was implemented later on in life we never had. So things like self-preservation and protection against injuries, you know, stretching programs, diet and nutrition, unheard of. Although Arsene Wenger uh, and people like him got a tremendous amount of credit. There was one club where it was happening and I actually turned their man a big brown envelope full of money down. That was Crystal Palace. Malcolm Allison was doing it 30 years before Arsene Wenger bought it 
to the to the UK. So you know what I mean by that is like say double sessions, core strengthening and and conditioning, weight training programs. We never had none of that. So so what what the point I make is you know I think young players quite rightly. And, and ironically, it came in when I was at Leighton Orient as a pro and and, one, and the youth team coach at the time, John Gorman, who worked closely with Glenn Oddle at Spurs yeah. uh, and England, he was one of the ones that helped bring it in and implement it, whereby, you know, there was um, a reigning back, shall we say, of, uh, of the duties that were covered. And, uh, you know, there was a line drawn under, you know, the certain amount of duties they would do. And then after that, it was all about the football. And, and, and I think rightly so. Yeah. You know, the, the major difference was obviously like the money. Massive, massive, massive difference. You, you, every you had to scratch and fight and kick and bite for any sort of recognition or, or, or money that you got back then in the game. And forget me, forget me, there was household names, particularly where Chelsea were concerned. And um, I would say we would probably, with the exception of Ray Wilkins, who, you know, when he, I, I remarked in my book, when he walked in, it was like Frank Sinatra had walked into the room or on the training pitch, you know what I mean? But yeah. with the exception of people like him, even uh, people like Peter Osgood, who, who returned to Chelsea from um, United States, came back to us from Philadelphia, people like Mickey Droy, uh, Ronnie Harris, you know, they were on decent money, but really and truly, it was it would probably be tantamount similar to, a you know, a self-employed tradesman's money. Wow, um, so not life-changing then, not life-changing amount of money back then. No, you had, you had, you had four years right. at Chelsea, John. Successful, would you say? Where? Four years where? Chelsea. Chelsea. No, six. 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 six I was in 74. I just, I just uh, jumped in with both feet. I uh, signed schoolboy in 74. Apprentice 76. Then got offered a uh, four-year pro. There was 17 and a half, just uh, in 19, coming up to 98. And then um, I eventually left in 1980 after a fallout with the regime. How did that come about then, John? Uh, that that was a transfer to Millwall. Yeah. The old den. Uh, well, how did that, how did that all come about? If you, if you tell our listeners, it was a combination of things. I was probably, I, w- I would have been the torchbearer bearer for, you know, what I've regarded ever since why England haven't done anything. And, and a lot of people go, a lot of players go to the, you know, the wayside, they fall by the wayside. I was yeah. a torchbearer bearer for, uh, you know, Basically, adolescent angst and uh, lack of humility. You know, all, all the things that I like to think I would have learned from since then. But um, I was particularly irked with the uh, the training regime. And I expected a lot better from um, someone who's now called Sir Jeff Hurst. I just knew him as Jeff Hurst and uh, Bobby Gould. And it, what it was, it was the club was like seen constantly in turmoil. And, and and again, you don't recognise it at the time. It only comes for experience. What you do, you knuckle down and you worry about yourself and you look after your own career. So course, with regards yeah. to things like, you know, training hard, I'd gone from the, that extreme to the extreme of being, um, you know, trying to be accepted as one of the chaps and trying to be a bit of a playboy and, you know, the clothes and the nights out and the afternoons drinking sessions, although I never had a, a great capacity or particularly like the taste of drink. And then obviously that affects your rest and re- replenishment. And then you get up and it becomes a vicious cycle. You do the same again the next day. And I got caught in that trap. But it, it, it sort of tied in. It was like the perfect storm or a perfect storm. We had, when I did a thing with Danny Kelly on Talk Sport, uh, my sport in life, we should have we should have actually laboured the point. I think it's it's a massive ask when you when you're at the bottom looking up. Right, what do I do to achieve the next level? Then what do I do to achieve the next level? Then what do I do to achieve the ultimate level, which is the first team? We had yeah. uh, a massive turnover of coaches, and some were par excellence, some were not so good. And we had seven managers. More importantly, seven managers in six seasons, including Ron Stewart, who, who acted as caretaker twice. And then you had like very short tenures, really. Danny Blanche Flower. And then you had Ken Shaletta, who was promoted. He, I, I was brought up 
with Ken, who passed away quite recently, you know, may rest in peace. He, uh, he was a one-club man. He knew everything about the history of the club. He knew everything about the history of, like, players from way back when, Dockett's Diamonds and all that turnout. And then right up to the present time with Dave Sexton and then Eddie McCready and beyond that when he became manager. So, um, you know, I thought it was like a bit of uh, what you might call a leg up in terms of being able to be pushed. And I was made captain of the reserves at 17 and a half. So it was all a little bit like it was in us and it was like a very cosy. It was a lot of togetherness. It, it, was, it was a fantastic atmosphere. It went from being that to, like, like I say, a club in turmoil. And then the, the, the managers. It went from when I joined Dave Sexton uh, to Ron Stewart, caretaker, to Eddie McCready, who, who was like, even back then, he, he was the full package. You know what I mean? The fantastic man manager, charisma oozing out of every port, unbelievable coaching ability, innovative tactic, tactics. The year we went up, I think he played 4-4-1-1. No one had even experimented with it or heard of it. And he played Ray Wilkins off of the front man, Steve Finiston, and we got promoted. After him, uh, Ron Stewart, caretaker again. Uh, sorry, Ken Shaletto, then Ron Stewart, caretaker again, then Danny Blanche Flower, then Jeff Hurst. So, you know, massive turnover of managers. And it no turned stability. out to be, uh, yeah, no stability and a perfect storm because I was just like fed up with a training regime of us. He came in. I expected, uh, like, you know, in terms of football IQ, massive amounts more from him and Bobby Gould. And ultimately, I can recite to this day what we did every day if we weren't over Richmond Park doing a seven mile run. He came in and made a, you know, a sweeping statement, what you might call a sweeping generalisation. Nobody in the club's fit enough. So it was either a seven-mile run over over uh, Richmond Park interspersed with shuttles and doggies, or if we were at the training ground, not a three-stage elongated uh, comprehensive warm-up like you'd have now. It was just like basically a jog around the pitch, a few stretches, and then uh, you you were struggling in terms of dealing with the lactic acid. After that, we did um, one 800 metres, two 400 metres, four 200 metres, Four box to box, four lots of shuttles, four lots of doggies, uh, whatever you want to call them, and then uh, and then a nine aside. So there were, in effect, there were no like what I was used to with regards to drills or phases yeah. of play or patterns of play or you know restarts, set pieces, whatever terminology you want to use, defensive strategy, all the stuff that we've done under previous coaches, even. Bringing in a theme because very big on, and it all, it can all be traced back to. Uh, what Guardiola uses, it can all be traced back to Ajax. And Dave Sexton and Dario Grady were massive fans of like the Ajax way in the early 70s. And I think, it, I don't know, uh, Michaels, Renus Michaels, you know, basically his syllabus, um, mantra, doctrine, whatever you want to call it, his methodology. And, um, you know, the theme and the thread was taken from that. So I was used to stuff like, you know, coaching phases of play, third and building up from the back. And then we went from that under Dave Sexton, Dario, Ken, Eddie Mack, to just, just basically running the knackers office. So obviously, <laughs> me being me, um, I piped up. And it didn't go yeah. down too well. Then I was accused of being an integral part of the drinking culture at Chelsea after being uh, caught in, in a pub, which uh, basically everyone in the club had done since before, which was to go down there. For, for the sake of a bit of team bonding after the... Uh, we used to have one uh, session a week at the ground, short and sharp at the ground on a Friday. And then everyone, you know, normally anywhere between 15 and 30 young pros used to go down there and have a black currant and lemonade or a glut or a lemonade and lime and a game of darts, game of pole, no drinking and a, and a bit and a bit of lunch and before we went on. Uh, and Bobby Gould... Bobby Gould accused of Gould, being, a, being a drinker, John. Is that what they accused yeah, you right. of? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. When the truth be told, 
I've uh, even to this day, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a drinker. I can't stand the taste of it. You know, what I mean, I'm my favourite my favourite drinks are uh, milk, water, and tea, and I'm mad for coffee. And only one brand of coffee. Do you know what I mean? I'm a coffee freak, but I've never, I've never, I've never been like a massive drinker. And I just used to go and have the occasional thing with just to be one of the chaps. You know what I mean? Just yeah. to go out with the lads. Yeah, there is nothing wrong with that at all, John. Is it, you know, when you when you went to Millwall, what was it? Was there a massive culture difference as to what there was at Chelsea? Did you find the coaching better? You know, what was it? What was it? What was the difference? Did you notice a difference straight away, or you know, was it was it all pretty what similar all, around that what, sort of time? What was you, what was used to at Chelsea? Um, John, they've always put out a few good kids. Spurs, Ch- uh, Arsenal have always put out a few good kids and, and bought players through the ranks and s- some really magnificent players. But in terms of like perpetual turnover of getting players ready for the first team, I think it like the myth like West Ham in Thomas were the academy. I think that was blown out of the water by what was being achieved at Chelsea, and it was a massive coaching culture which was implemented. Dave Sexton, Eddie McCready, Dario Grady, and these people who, when the truth be told, they sowed seeds and gave me they they, they drilled into me habits that would remain with my in, with me for the rest of my career. Then I went to Millwall. I thought was uh, you know amount a borderline farce of a regime under under Hurst and Gold. Um, and listen, I, it could be a, people could. I, I'm just prom, all I can do is promise you that I'm not lying, and that I was there and I experienced it. The best coach yeah. in the club up when I when I left, everyone had gone by then. Dario, Dave Sexton had gone, Eddie, Eddie had gone, Gilletto had gone, Dario Grady had gone, and the best coach in the club was uh, Guy with, and he, he turned out he was really a magnificent coach. And I I uh, bumped into him again at Leighton Orient. His name was Brian Eastick. But in terms of everybody else there, it really was very very poor. But, when I went to Millwall, unfortunately, it was even worse. Unless George Petchy came onto the onto the training field, you know, he, he had a guy there as his assistant, a fantastic, fantastic guy, lovely man, thoroughly decent human being. But in, when you're a 20 year old, you know, player who's wasted a season, by the way, got reserveitis, you know, you want to get back to the drills and improving your game and sharpening your game and working on, uh, you know, and trying to improve uh, your weaknesses and, and polishing your strengths. And that just wasn't the case unless George Petchy was on the training field. Who George, it turned out, was the best, without a doubt, the best manager I ever played under at, at, at Millwall. But it was just the coaching side of it. You know, when he, when he delegated responsibility, you yeah. know, everything sort of um, the standards plummeted. So... Really and truly, uh, for anything effective to happen, George had to be on the training field. Who was coming through at Mill at that time? You know, that really caught your eye, that, that you thought, oh, I can't wait for him to come through, you know? I can't wait for him to be in the same team as me. Or or was it, you know, was it just a really unsuccessful period in their time and, and you wanted to move on quickly? Or did you see a future at Mill? I know you're only there a year, but... Yeah, a year and a half I was there. I, I jumped yeah. out the fact for the fire. I went there on, uh, I actually signed on Valentine, uh, Valentine's Day 1980 and I left in uh, the end of September 1981. So I was there about 18 months. Yeah. But it was it was a case of very much I jumped out of the, out of the, the Chelsea were hemorrhaging money. Um, I'd left there and um, Jeff, Jeff Hurst said he was going to try and eradicate the, uh, the poor professionalism and eradicate the drinking culture at Chelsea. And he went out and signed uh, Roy McDonough from Walsall, who in his book, Red Card Roy... Red Card Roy, I was about to say that. Yeah, ex-Southend, a Southend legend, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm up against Roy a few times. You know, we had some right ding-dongs, you know, but in after the game in the bar, you know, good guy. 
Um, good yeah. as gold, you know, with plenty of plenty of laughs, plenty of banter. And um, he used to say to me at the start of every game, whenever, how's it going to beat a day, Sitch? So I said to him, up to you, Roy. And we, you can have it any way you want. He was talking through. You know, so he was doing, uh, when Chelsea signed him in his book, I think he said he was doing about 35 pints a week in the drinking culture. But sticking sp- uh, to specifics, they were also... When I went to Millwall, I mean, it was a bad time for the country. It was a bad time for London in particular and, and the country in particular. So, yeah. you know, unlike now, uh, it would seem that football wasn't exempt from it uh, or immune uh, immune to it. And uh, Millwall were very, very much uh, struggling uh, financially. And what they did is, I was, someone just did a book, Merv Payne, uh, Mill, Millwall acquaintance of mine. And he, he, he wrote about the FA Youth Cup winning side. And he's caught, it's a great book called Ordinary Boys. So little plug for him now. Yeah, I was um, I was I was sort of juxtaposed in the middle there. I was like twenty, and I I just turned up at Millwall, so I wasn't really the experience that that uh, they needed in certain positions. And then the rest of the side was made up from one or two big signings, like veteran players like John Jackson in goal, Mel Blythe centre back, Barry Kitchen, a club legend, centre back. Yeah. Uh, John Mitchell, he was bought for big money in Millwall terms from Fulham for under grand. Johnny Lyons, he was bought for big money in Millwall terms from Wrexham. I think it was Wrexham. Then there was the, the, the next scale down with me, paid for like a bar of soap from Chelsea. I think it was about 10 grand a fee. And then you had the effort, the rest. So, uh, you know, there, there was there was that problem with regards to lack of experience. So with uh, young players like you get now, where they absolutely bend over backwards to, you know, make allowances for them, make excuses for them, you're going to get that inconsistency with results. No. Unfortunately. And, 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 that, and that was very much the case at Millwall. On, later on in your career, you moved to Gillingham and then Leighton Orient. What was what was it like being a lower league footballer back then? I mean, obviously the money wouldn't have been wouldn't have been good. We're talking about the standard here as well. The standard now, in my opinion, in the Championship, League One and League Two, pretty decent. Mm. What was it like back then? I mean, the pitches at the the top end in the, the old First Division were bogs. What what was it like below that? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, listen, I, I was lucky with a couple of places. I mean, like Chelsea, the Chelsea pitch was diabolical. The Millwall pitch was diabolical at the old Den. Yeah. Then I went to Gillingham. And I've got to say, um, along with the Millwall lads, they're the greatest bunch of lads I ever met in the game. Um, and I had, I had four years there. I mean, the first two were absolutely fantastic. It's uh, it's like I remarked in the book, like, you know, like you have you ever had a night out that yeah, it wasn't preconceived or, you know, you've, you've gone out on a whim or you've just sort of turned up somewhere and it's turned out to be, you know, the best dinner party or the best drinking session or the best night out or the best barbecue you've ever had that would explain the first two years like an impromptu uh, arrangement where that would explain the first two years that I had at Gillingham and then like you you know you've got a pre-arranged meal or social or a show that you've booked or uh, you've gone to a club and it's turned out to be a massive disappointment that would explain the, the second two years at Gillingham but the playing surface there was magnificent the lads like I said were among the best I ever met in the game all, all proper men and then, um, but yeah, like the downside was, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know what it was all about. You, you know, he was like a, a pseudo intellectual pygmy and uh, Keith Peacock, you know, he, he's, he's claimed to fame. His claim to fame was being um, uh, like massive amount of appearances um, for Cholton and another one of life's lucky boys, you know, like sort of uh, 
what you might call diminished stature and no doubt a good athlete um, yeah. and, and, a, and a decent good a decent enough player but like I mean I'm not being funny what I come from and then he he uh, said to me that I was an enigma and I was like a poor man's Steve Bruce kept me on the same money for four years and uh, it took the again it took the it took the dairy off the it took the pleasure off of my four years at Gillingham because he, he ended up he was playing games in my career because there was a uh, a bid from Brentford to take me there, which would have meant the fee involved with um, Julian and my services free of charge plus a profit. Do you know what I mean? And he, yeah. he said no. But, you know, he, he contradicted it by going out and signing uh, two centre two centre halves and a fullback, which were the two positions where I'd, I'd acquitted myself, nothing short of magnificently for the previous three years. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, so, you know, it makes it one person, isn't it? That, you know... As you said before, the first two years at, at Gillingham, great. Second yeah. two years, someone's come in yeah. and completely ruined it for it's you. Spo- it, it spoils your time there. It spoils your memory there. It spoils your, you know, it spoils the, uh, you know, what should have been a really enjoyable uh, couple of years. Although, I was, like I said, I was kept on the same money thing. And you said, you said, um, you know, a little bit earlier about the, the money side of it. Um, looking back now, I'll be honest, and then, you know, like, I'll answer the question. Whenever anybody answers me a question, I answer the question, I give them a truthful answer. Then yeah. you'll always get like, um, I don't know, an M-ring in uh, pseudo-intellectual Muppet who just wants to jump on the bandwagon and have a chip. They, they'd accuse me of being bitter or accuse me of being angry and bitter. Well, I had to look up, I had to look up um, the meaning of the word bitter in the dictionary, actually, last week when someone else said it. And uh, I promise you, and on art, you know, it, the only the answer I can give is an honest answer. If now, yeah. if it sounds like I'm angry and I'm bitter, then it, you know it's only the case because I'm probably angry at myself. What I should have done, uh, I should have been a man and I should have said, you know what? I should have said, forget this. Arbouring ambitions of being in the pro game and trying to bounce back to the where I was with Chelsea, made massive progress, bounds, and made massive fights in a space of time, um, and been. Offered a four-year pro deal at 17 and a half, made captain reserves at uh, 18. I was in the first team at 19 and out the club by the time I was 20. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's your loyalty again, John, isn't it? It's your loyalty again. That, that's that's well, the loyalty yeah, you're no, coming out. I've got no credit because it would have been very easy. Like now, you see people, um, the list is, is longer than me on. You know what I mean? You see people, they've gone off the rails. They can't deal with being out of football. can't deal with... Um, being, you know, crashing down to earth, having this massive disappointment, uh, can't cope with being, dropping down the pay scale, can't cope with dropping down the, you know, the plane uh, sort of spectrum in terms of like they were once top flight. Um, and I've, I've never, um, or, or for, for the fact that I was a, a, a fantastically consistent footballer, um, you know, so... Yeah, I can only give an honest answer. And if, if I could have my time again, I should have been a man and just walked out. I should have said, you know what? <clears throat> if the game's about money and medals, I'm not getting one or the other with the, with the outfits I'm, I'm teaming up with. And I think ultimately what it boils down to, a lot a lot like uh, coach, some coaching aspects. Because let's face it, right? Yeah. Uh, if, you look at, if you look at the lower divisions, Managing in the lower divisions is almost, I'd say, 99% a thankless task, you know, because there's very few clubs now they have got any chance whatsoever of achieving any sort of success. Inevitably, when they do, it's, um, 
you know, they're part of the Boing Boing Club. You know, they'll go up and they'll go down again, right? They're not going to yeah. go on, go through the divisions, as it were, right? So the point I'll make is <clears throat> I should have just gone, you know, I want to wipe my mouth for this lifestyle, which I think, you know, I'd, I'd become accustomed to and maybe got a bit comfortable with. And I should have walked out. I should have. <laughs> I've got mates who can't read or write, and they've got you know houses with acreage and swimming pools and tennis courts. <laughs> Do you, you understand what it, I mean? And it's yeah. Never kicked the ball. What What I think um, it is, John. I think I think there's a thing in life being called too loyal. And I grew up in a similar similar area to you. Um, in, well, I grew up in South London, but sort of same sort of characters. You want to you want to make things work where you're somewhere. You don't want to give up at something. You don't want to just walk out and go. Oh, do you know what? Sod that. You know it's not working for me now. This new this new guy's coming here. It's like me at work. This new manager comes in. If I don't like him, but you kind of you stay out of loyalty. You it's I, I think that's that that's your character. That's why you stayed at Gillingham. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not bitterness at all. That's actually pretty admirable. To be fair. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? I should have been. Um, I should have been more. Do- you know, sort of dogmatic about standing me ground uh, in terms of like getting more money. I mean, we, we, it, literally it was like not to put too fine a point on it with Peacock. It ended up a mega piss take. We was arguing, he was arguing over giving me a, like a fiver for petrol. You know what I mean? Wow. And, uh, yeah. and, and and then on top of that, insulting me by calling me a poor man, Steve Bruce. Let me tell you something. It's all That's about shocking. an opinion. It's all about fate. It's all about fate. And it's all about an opinion. And, um, you know, he played very well, very robustly, uh, very aggressively with a tremendous amount of dedication and ability. But if you want to break it down forensically, I'm telling you now, <laughs> I was a better athlete than Steve Bruce. I was quicker than Steve Bruce. And people said I lack pace. but <laughs> I was quicker than Steve Bruce. I was a better athlete than, than him over any distance. Uh, I had more spring from a standing jump. I had more spring from a run and jump. I could punch the ball 40 yards the same as him from a, from a headed clearance. I was a threat at set pieces. And I could control and pass the ball with both feet or any surface on my body, which he couldn't. He was right-footed and that was the end of it. it the left leg was just for standing on, full stop, right? Yeah, so the bottom line is someone at this end promotes him like Gillingham. You had like, um, like Bill Collins who'd been there for like 40 years at the club. He was his man. He was in his corner. And then you had Peacock pushing him. You had Paul Taylor pushing him. And then, you know, Norwich buy him for 80 grand. And he, he proves himself at an higher level. And then Bob's your uncle. You know what I mean? Before you know yeah. it, like he's, he's joining the biggest the biggest club in the world. Uh, yeah. But listen, good luck to him. I'm just telling you as it is. You know what yeah. I mean? I'll, I'll back, myself yeah. against, back myself against anyone, any of them. But I'll tell you what, John, there's been many players like that. Um, where, where I live in Scotland also, there's there's players in the lower leagues here that I see sometimes on a Saturday that are, are better than some players in the Premier Division. It, it's yeah. fate. As you said, it's fate. Um, right place, right time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not it's not until you come to, to realise, you know, through it's, it's experience and age that I've got now. Um, um, you know, I, I think my first take on it was probably the right one in terms of, uh, you know, being accustomed to the lifestyle, being accustomed to the, just like doing that as a living, really, because the same happened again at Leighton Orient under Frank Clark. And, and, and the truth be told, we're probably one of the best. Listen, it sounds brash. It sounds arrogant. It sounds outspoken. It sounds even c- ridiculous. But I was probably one of the best signings he ever made in his career because there was like so many knives out for him 
He'd, uh, I'd joined him. I couldn't believe it. it, it, it again, I'm going to address it. I'm going to be a little bit more, probably the wrong way of putting it, but I'm going to be a little bit more, you know, aggressive in terms of how outspoken I am in my second book. Because I remember, yeah. I think you remember his words in 1985. I went there. Peacock couldn't even bring himself to face me after the way he treated me at Gillingham. And it, this was off the back of a, uh, a, 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 to complete some fixtures in the reserves. I was coming back from, um, uh, I think it was a cartilage. Anyway, we played late in Orient and Frank Clark said he signed me, but he said, I'll take a punt on you. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I'll take a punt on you. He said, all I can offer you is a couple of hundred quid a week, which is what I'd been on at Gillingham for four years. Uh, I was on 100, 100, 180 quid a week and £20 expenses to get me from North London through to Gillingham um, in, in terms of petrol. Um, and then in those days, clubs had all the power. All they had to do was offer you the same money and they could retain your registration and your, uh, you know, all the, all the uh, financial compensation rights with regards to the football club. So he ticked all the boxes there, but I was left skint. Then, then I then I get thing, and obviously I, by this time, um, you got people. Uh, you know, he could do this, but he can't do this. Uh, which I like to think I wasn't one of them when I became a coach. As in, they look and concentrate on what you can't do rather than look and concentrate on what you can do. Right. So yeah. now I'm left with limited options. So then he says to me, "I'll take a punt on you for two hundred quid a week." Right. This is who's just been at two situations. He's hanging, he's hanging on to his job by a thread. He's got like knives cut in back, left, right, and centre throughout the football club. Uh, yeah, one ally in the club who was the who was uh, the physio, um, yeah. and he's taking a he's taking a punt on me, who I ended up being captain and Mister Consistency for the following six years, right? But he's taking a punt on me. You get me? So anyway, yeah, I went with it. I went with it and I ended up I ended up there for uh, 10 years altogether, you know. But the, the, there's like a common denominator, like a common thread that runs through where um, I, I suppose it's sort of life in a nutshell or certain aspects of life, you know, where things end yeah. and um, they don't end particularly well. If they did end well, then they wouldn't end, would they? Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, John. So, yeah. Every club I've left has been like a little bit of a sour taste. Good story, though, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Look, I mean, looking back on your playing career, John, yeah. most memorable moment before going into management. What's your most memorable moment? Look, like, out of all the clubs, you know, what's that? What's that one that really stands out that you think? Do you know what? Yeah, and you see, you know, you close your eyes at night and think, "Wow," you know. Uh, there's a few. I mean, there's a few. There's. Um... That was a that was a massive high, massive buzz scoring on my uh, home debut uh, for Millwall. We uh, we beat the side Oxford. They went through all the divisions, and I think they ended up winning the Milk Cup. Uh, we played them at home. We done them three 0 I got I got the second from uh, from a wide free kick. Mickey Chatterton, uh, he whipped it in at Ed I got across the the guy. He was actually I think he was their captain for years. Mal Shotton, S H O double. Double T O N, uh, so it's quite similar sort of surname to mine, but he was like um, a kingpin, you know. I mean, I got across him and I went bosh, uh, head, neck, yeah. and shoulders, top corner. Um, that that was a massive highlight because of the way the supporters took to me and treated me after the game, and then um, 
for, for the time that I was there. Um, Good people down book, there. I put, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in my book. If you can't play for Mill supporters, you shouldn't be in football. No, um, good people. You know, in listen, I had a couple of dodgy games where I got a bit of stick. When they see you roll your sleeves up and you dig yourself out of it, uh, you know, the, the, the you know the, che- the cheering's even better because they see this, this boy, he's a game. He's game, this boy. You know what I mean? He's not yeah. going to... Um, I'll tell you a massive eye that didn't happen. Uh, I turned it down. Uh, being highly thought of enough by John Lyle... Uh, he, he asked Ken Shilato, I think we drew nil-nil at Upton Park under the lights, uh, and he, he, he said, I'd like to take him on loan. They'd obviously had a chat. There, I suppose there was a bit of congestion in me breaking into the first team. I was captain yeah. of reserves, and, and John Lowell said, like, I'll, I'll, um, he said, we'll send him here on loan, and uh, we'll, we'll get to work on him. And I turned it down. One of the biggest regrets, but at the same time, a highlight. Um, Chelsea... Uh, a lot of highlights there. Um, Liverpool were like, I think, reigning European champions, reigning yeah. league champions. Um, it was like Uzu of British football in the side. Uh, I think it was only it was my second second full ninety minutes at home to Liverpool in, at Stamford Bridge, and uh, we ended nil nil, which at the time, yeah, uh, big. It, it, everything you needed to know about Chelsea Football Club. You know what I mean? There was no goals. There was no goals in the after after they sold Steve Finnis, and there was absolutely no goals in the team. There was no goals in the club, and uh, you know the best you could hope for was a nil-nil. So to, we kept a clean sheet and we nicked a point. And That's that, not that bad. Seeing as I got Dalgleish, Suness, Thompson yeah. at that time, you know, yeah, all that mob. Hanson, um, yeah. Terry McDonald, midfield, um, Johnson and Kenny Dalgleish up front. And he was a face Johnson. He come from Ipswich, and he was it was England England quality. Um, so that that was a buzz, and uh, I was outstanding away to Norwich. I was Chelsea's best player and best defender, even though we got beat. Um, yeah, so there's quite a few highlights. I mean, uh, getting some eventual, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not up there with the European Cup, but getting promoted with Leighton Orient and being captain of the promotion winning side in 88, 89, that was good. You know, so. Yeah. There's a few pluses, you know. I mean, I think, um, and then you look back and you just think, if if I could have my time again, would I do it? And if I did, how would I do it? You know what I mean? And I've got to say, I make yeah. a lot of changes. I'd, I'd be, um, I think, I'd be a little bit more brash and a little bit more arrogant and outspoken in in different areas than I have been. But it's it's shaped the story that that you've got to tell now. And I mean, you you have got a book out, John. Um, yeah. something I, I do want to touch on because I do want to promote your book to everyone that's going to be listening. So tell us a bit about that, John. Tell us a bit about how that came about, uh, when that got published, how much it is and where it's available. Right. Well, um, if I start back to front, uh, it's available on my website. Uh, you could go to www.therealsits.co.uk or um, if there's a problem... Uh, I take emails. My, my wife sees to it all. Uh, Louisa Sitton. It's uh, and her first name because she's Greek Cypriot. It's spelled L O I Z A. Sitton at tiskali.co.uk. Or yeah. uh, you can order it on a- on Amazon, right? So well, there's a few places you can get it. Now it's not just um, it's not just about. 
the upside and, uh, you know, there, there, were, there weren't really any sort of, like I said, I want a playboy. I don't think it's what you might call a stereotypical um, book about a footballer. Um, might, might be because when I read the money, but, um, you know, so it's not like, but it's not about going to the playboy club. It's not about going to nightclubs. It's not about gambling and drinking. It's just like, it's, it's my life story from when I was a kid and it, it, it's, it's, it's from an era, um, yeah. which I think a lot of people, um, it, it's been quite successful and a lot of people might be able to relate to. What it also does is it tries to explain uh, the goings on behind the scenes with regards to the now infamous Channel 4 documentary. Um, I mean, I probably wish I probably should have bought it out a bit sooner. Um, right. But I had many, many, many years where I was just getting on with my life and I ignored the thing, for the, the clamour for it to be done. And I ignored the advice and I ignored people pointing me in that direction to give my side of the story. And then I thought, you know what? Let's go for it. Well, um, yeah, I think as well, because... I mean, I didn't, I didn't see that documentary until about, you know, a few years ago. Obviously, I was too young at the time uh, yeah. when, when it was first aired. When it, when it was, and so that there's a lot about it now because a lot of football fans have a bit of nostalgia. like to look back at things. My mate showed me it and uh, fa- absolutely fascinated by it. And then I've seen there's been a lot of interest in you in the last few years, John, with interviews and podcasts and stuff like that, you know. Um, so tell us a little bit about it. Was that... Did that really damage your character there, John? That that documentary because it looked like they just hung you out to dry, mate. To be honest. Yeah, I mean, again, you live, you learn. Everything comes for experience. I mean, first of all, I like to think I'm better than that. Uh, in actual fact, I know I'm better than that. But what it was, I just think of. First of all, uh, based on me coaching ability, um, it, it, it's like a two-sided coin, right? I was absolutely blinded by arrogance and ambition. And so the flip side of the coin being with the experience I've got now, after initially leaving Leighton Orient from relegation, the pre-93-94, the story, what happened was uh, they were about to restructuring uh, the Premier League to be reduced to 20 teams. So as a consequence, it had a knock-on effect in the divisions below. And in our division, instead of three going down, four were going to go down. And I was asked to take over when the previous incumbent walked out, uh, was fired, whatever. You know, I mean, it was never really clearly defined, but he just went on to be the highest paid gardener in Loughton, having decimated uh, the art art and soul of the club and spent all the money. He went on to be the highest paid gardener in Loughton for 15 months. By this time, Frank Clark had left for Nottingham Forest. So, um, you know, the club was really in, in turmoil. It really it was upside down. It was all over the place. And when you see the thing, listen, if I could tighten with recent, when you, could, when you see the thing recently with regards to what he said, Scott Parker, I can't relate to that because he's inherited like a, a, a club that was in turmoil. What, 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 what I perceive to be in the end, um, you know, overpaid, underachieving senior pros who really and truly uh, used the club as an ATM in the twilight of their career. And there was absolutely no chance of any any uh, resale value on any of them. And uh, they were happy just to like plod along. And all I wanted in the end was to try and get value for money for the supporters, which again was like misplaced um, uh, loyalty, if you like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I t- took over. And the, 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 the backstory to all of that 
is uh, no no two ways about it. It's you know it ended up uh, affecting me uh, not only at the time but but long term. My my reaction uh, basically finished my career because I I trusted the uh, people who came in, and it turned out to be a pack of lies. It turned out to be uh, uh, lies about it was commissioned by Channel Four, which she wasn't. She just basically right. the the woman that shot it went and um, she, she got the blessing of a an independent production company in inverted commas in uh, Red Lion Street in Islington. And they said, we'll go and crack on, see if you can get your foot in the door and do it, and, and uh, we'll take it from now. So she spent the year filming, and then we all <laughs> very naively signed a, 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 a disclaimer saying that they were free to edit it how they wanted and et cetera, and we knew oh, what we was, God. you know, blah, blah, blah. So very naive and um, no final say on the uh, on the editing um basically i i had four rants and then ba- uh, the, the 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 majority of the documentary revolved around my my rants um yeah i've seen know. that and this is why i said to you john about them hanging you out to dry the way they've edited it and and as you said before it basically buried your football career i was going to i was going to yeah. ask you yeah. um yeah. why yeah. why you're not in football anymore because you've you, you've got the knowledge you've got the passion you've you're a true football man in my eyes and in many people's eyes as well. I've not, you know, I've read a lot of comments on other podcasts and interviews you've been on. I've never seen one single bad word said about you. Compared to some of the characters we've got in the game now, you know, a lot of people would rather see someone like you in there, mate. And I mean, it, it's well, listen, a shame I, that they've done that to you. It really is. Yeah, I think in the end, it was prejudiced edit, editing. And then uh, yet again, through hindsight I don't, you don't realise, Ash, until until you you've had a bit of experience that journalism is based on sensationalism. So, me of course, yeah. drilling the uh, you know the back four. You know, if you include the keeper, the back five, uh, the two screening midfield players, uh, the back seven, uh, doing patterns of play, doing phases of play in uh, building from the back through the thirds. Uh, you know, third man runs like Dave Sexton used to coach with Dario. Uh, third man run from the middle third into the attacking third to break into the box. Uh, phases of play around the box, set pieces, restarts, whatever you want to call them. Defensive strategy we worked on every day. Shape we worked on every day. You know, and you got all these coaches uh, in inverted commas who are revered for that. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking about and doing it was the same as them twenty five years ago. But the bottom line is, you know, prejudiced editing to to put out a sensational, you know, fifty odd minute documentary. It's um, there's no doubt about it. It's uh, affected what would have been the rest of me, me footballing career. Plus, when you yeah. throw into the mix, you know, I wasn't really. I went from being so what I'm going to say slightly contradictory, right? I could still be in around company. I don't have to get bladdered. I don't have to get. I don't have to be get, drink myself virtually comatose. You understand what I mean? Yeah. And, and what I used to yeah. do, I used to f- love being a, a social animal, and and I went from being out three, four, five times a week. So basically, I just wanted to be locked in. and I became a private man. Um, I just wanted to be, you know, go home to my wife, have a decent meal. And then when my children came along, I just wanted to be with my children. Now, the point I make is, uh, football, you've got a lot of sycophancy. You've got people who make themselves busy, you know, to, to touch base with people every day, picking up phones, talking waffle and bullshit. Yeah. And that, that's not my game. It never has been. Do you know what I mean? And it, all no. the jobs are given out over half a lago or a game of golf. I've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a leader, not a follower. I'm, I'm not really 
you know, I don't mind being humble enough to ask for help. I don't mind uh, gathering knowledge. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to hang on someone's sort of, co you, you know, coattails because they're, which is how the game works. You know, you get someone higher profile who's made a name at another club and they take his mates with him, et cetera, et cetera. That's not, that's not yeah. my game. So, so consequently, um, I'm left with going cap in hand and picking the phone up, which again, after a certain amount of refusals, I mean, I, I was applying for jobs for 18 months. As soon as I was parted company with Barry Earn and Leighton Orient, I was applying for jobs for about 18 months. And then when you're not, it, it gets to the stage where you're not even getting the courtesy of a reply, you think to yourself, you know, I've, uh, I've got to be pragmatic. I've got three small children and I've got to put food on the table and pay the bills. So, you know, apart from, yeah. I've had four non-league job, jobs and, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. And uh, yeah, there was a pleasure to coach guys that were there, majority of them. Um, and, and, you know, it, it just turned out that it with regards to getting back in the program. Um, was it because I, you're not, as you said, you're not, John, you're not a yes man. Um, at all from, from, from what I'm hearing so obviously that's hindered because that's what they want I think that's what the FA want yes men you know I'm not going to mention names you know you know who they are um, your, fa well, did your, so your face not fit after that documentary you, you, you know I, I thought you were too too loyal too outspoken and, and your face didn't fit amongst a, amongst a sort of image that they want a, ma a manager to be a top, a top level manager to be yeah, I mean, I, I I like the breakout. I was I was breaking away from the norm. I mean, I've I've staffed courses where other FA coaches have said to me, Oof, you know, what I mean, you've you, like, you, what, I'll give you one, John Allpress, right? He uh, he said, right. uh, you, you you know you know you you definitely know your football. He said he said you've just taught me something that I didn't know, right? And all it was was like uh, coaching a certain uh, theme in a small sided game, right? So that's a lovely compliment, right? But the bottom line is. When you apply, like I did for a, an area monitor's job to oversee courses, having for the previous, what, eight, nine years? Is that about nine years? Yeah, nine years, 28 to 37. Um, and then you're getting leapfrogged by school teachers who, who uh, never mind, you know, 400 and odd games, uh, including sub appearances in all four divisions, uh, and, and an unbelievable, you know, amount of seeds sown with fantastic coaches throughout that career. Um, you know, they've never, never laced a pair of boots on in anger. So you think to yourself, how did they get themselves in this position to be leapfrogging me? And ironically, yeah. when they needed someone to speak up about something, uh, you know, they get like a little nudge in the back. Can you mention this on our behalf in a, in a staff meeting? Um, you know, so where that's concerned, that was out the window. Uh, and I, I would like to think I could have not only worked my way up, but also been uh, inquiring enough, had, had enough of a, an inquiring mind and, and be innovative and radical enough to make the, the massive changes that I think needed to be made in the, in the syllabus. Because although a lot of it's yeah. fantastic, there's, there's still a lot that's wrong um, oh, and, yeah. and, and that can be improved upon. And that's only come from seeds that were sown um, back in the 70s. And it's just like sort of as I was working my way up and, and ever since then, I've just said, I don't know if it's the right word, this cacophony of ideas in my head. Um, they've had they've had no outlet. So tying in with a book, Ash, what I've tried to do is, by and large, explain just very sketchy details and and a, and a, like a broad outline of how it was. I was looking to set Leighton Orient up. Um, yeah, which I'm going to go into more detail in my second book, but also more importantly, give the circumstances behind 
uh, why I was perceived as such, and, uh, and and I couldn't get a look in, if you know what I mean, uh, yeah. with regards to getting Lately. back in. Yeah. Do you think do you think all this has, uh, has an effect on the national team as well? I mean, that's the, the last question I was going to ask you, John, is about the future of the England team. Um, I know you've been outspoken on this on previous platforms before. Can you see England doing anything soon? I mean, there's, there's the right crop of players are coming through. We said that now. Sorry? I said, how many times have we said that? Yeah. When I was coming through, you had great players of that era. Um, and the only one who opened his mouth, he, he, uh, he ended up, he'd done well out of the game. He'd done well in, in terms of trophies and, and money. Yeah, Brian Clough, he just said like he couldn't believe that Certain people weren't, and, and where I was concerned, they were like footballing gods. There was at my club, Peter Osgood and Alan Hudson. He said, I'd have played them, I'd play them straight away. They'd be in the side. Right. So you go yeah. back, way back, you know, you go back to then, you go back to people like them, uh, you go back to the uh, same sort of era, Tony Curry. Um, then you've got like sort of later on, um, they, they argued a point about certain players who never earned a lot of caps, like. Uh, or as many as they should have done, like you know, Leticia, uh, Merson, people like this. Um, yeah. And then, and then Great you place. come, like you come latter day, you got like the, uh, the, in inverted commas, the golden generation. Well, what they achieved, the thing that was borderline embarrassing, borderline embarrassing. What they, what they, uh, what they did in tournaments. Um, yeah. Uh, Especially uh, in so, Germany. Yeah, they should should so, so much more was expected of them, and so much more should have been accomplished. Um, yeah, I mean, where I'm concerned, I just think like the they they went off track with regards to well, two things. It's slightly contradictory. I'll talk about the uh, this elite uh, player thing. Well, yeah. whose opinion is it that they're elite in the first place, right? And and secondly, what makes them elite? Thirdly, um, ultimately, will they will, will they uh, continue to be elite? You know, you get people who you get footballers who are late developers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then they're not isolated. They're not isolated in terms of uh, like they'd, like the French did with Claire Fontaine. They'd get the you know the best uh, two hundred youngsters and and put them in, and there'd be like three age groups all at once running uh, training, sort of on pitch, pitches side by side and residential in terms of uh, t- you know teaching them the the French FA syllabus um, and you know an abundance of unbelievable. Uh, world class through that. Um, if you fast forward to now, I just think there's too many uh, varying opinions. The best analogy I can draw, Ash, is like you know, I'm talking now as a black cab driver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Listen, it, 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 the driving on London's road, some of it is laughable, right? Uh, so you've got everything from like someone auditioning for driving Miss Daisy part two. Uh, to uh, Lewis Hamilton wannabe, absolutely off their nut on it be crack doing 110 mile an hour, whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the point I'll make is, like coaching, right? You pass the qualification, you're driving, and then everyone goes away and drives different. So what I'm saying is, you've got some people who are like like me. I like to think I'm an excellent, I'm a professional driver, so I'm an excellent driver. And I've been driving since I was 17 and a half and I passed me test at the first attempt. Like me full yeah. badge in coaching, right? So there are people who are fantastic drivers. There's 
They're courteous, everything you should be on the road, courteous, cooperative, um, like humble, forgiving, um, yeah. etc. you know, and, and, and uh, aware and they sense danger, etc. etc. right? Then the other end of the spectrum is you've got people who've never been allowed in a million years near a set of ignition keys, right? So, <laughs> right? so the same way yeah. someone passes a driving test, they go away and everyone drives differently. It's exactly the same with coaching. You've got people you think, wow, right? You look at them and they blow you away. And a lot of them, the FA have just kicked them by the cur- into the curb, but they've fell by the wayside over the years, right? Yeah. Um, Dario Grady, and uh, John Cartwright were meant when I was coming through doing my full badge, they were meant to be doing all the England age groups uh, from under 23 all the way down, right? For some reason, it completely fell out of bed and they didn't work together and they, they didn't work for the FA and uh, there was disagreements with the hierarchy and it wasn't to be, right? So two of the best developers of young players probably in, at that time in Europe, if not on the planet, Right. Then yeah. you've, um, you, you, look at, you look at the situation and you fast forward to now and you've got people who do well at the FA, then they go to a club and the financial rewards are such. They say, what are, what are we going to do? I'm going to pitch in with the club. Right? But the bottom line is you, you look, you say, like from Clough and then coaches like uh, the godfather of coaching in the United Kingdom, as far as I'm concerned, or in England, uh, he was doing, like I said earlier, I mentioned earlier, he was doing everything 30, 35 years before Arsene Wenger even thought of it or, you know, before yeah. he, he was even uh, kicking a ball. Uh, that's Malcolm Allison. Anything radical or innovative <clears throat> or different or uh, or in, in terms of being constructive to make for progress, they looked at the, they looked at the Blazers, the hierarchy, and they looked at them with suspicion and with probably more than suspicion, fear. Oh, you know, yeah. this guy is too loud, he's too outspoken, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not, listen, I'm not putting myself on the level of him, but what what I will say is, it's like a knock on, be a pyramid, and I'm, I'm uh, regarded as like not even on the pyramid or at the bottom of the pyramid, then checking all the right, right the way through that should be consistent. Now, that consistency comes about whereby, I've, as I've already said to you, I was stepped yeah. over by school teachers who've never laced a pair of boots on in anger. You understand what I'm trying to say? So if course, I'm looking yeah. upwards and I'm looking at like the Malcolm Allisons, the Dario Grady's, the John Cartwrights, the Cartwrights, the Brian Cluffs, uh, in particular, I think the best thing we've we've had in terms of being radical and innovative and thinking about mm-hmm. them and looking to change the game and improve the game. Uh, it was brought up by Malcolm Allison. I'm thinking myself, well, they're not a place for me in terms of people sort of looking upwards, looking upwards at me, you know what I mean? From, from underneath, yeah. you know, like school teachers, like I said, have never been part of the game or laced a pair of boots on, but politically somehow they managed to manoeuvre their way in. They managed to get their, get their foot in the door. And then it's about um, mini empire building and ring fencing to protect your position rather than crazy, rather than being um, outspoken and vocal and not being afraid to say stuff for the sake of, um, you know, the fear of being ridiculed, people just go up and they keep their nut down. And like I said, it's about, it's about empire building and, 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 and ring fencing your position, um, which, I, which I think is wrong. Uh, but, yeah. you know, listen, forget me. It's great. Like I've named it. It's great, far greater people than, um, that, you know, they couldn't, uh, 
they couldn't get their foot to the people that should have been the custodians of the game. You know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and probably the same. The probably the same. Sounds. You know, speaking outside of his room. You know, which is which is what the only the only thing I've got uh, in my play where, where I spoke out outside of my remit and I stopped. Sounds gone a bit there, John. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying the only um, maybe the only, the only uh, you know, little bit of saving grace I got was the fact that I was doing uh, five jobs outside of me. You know what I mean? So yeah. long-winded answer, but. That's what I do in the book. I've tried to explain everything from background, social background, family background. Um, like I said, our, our, uh, I got into the game more organically, which I think it should go back to. I think those were the best times. And I of think course, it, was, yeah. it was less pressure on kids. I mean, listen, I've been, I've thought about all this in depth and I've, I've gone through it in depth and uh, I've pieced it all together in my mind's eye in depth every, through the ages. Our stuff is done. Uh, physically they're a little bit better um, but you know in terms of resting and, and, and the appropriate replenishment but what I will say is I just think like back then it was uh, it was more organic and I think um, it, you know fast forward all the way to now um, it's, it's the background and the reasons why I couldn't get back in the game so hopefully people will find it a good read Ash, you know I mean so far yeah, I've I've... it's pretty successful I'm sure. I'm sure they will. And as as John said, it's on Amazon. You can get hold of him on Twitter, and and the the email address is given. For, is it Tiskally? Wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's Lu the one. Louise is sitting at tiskally.co.uk. Yeah. How much is it retailing at, John? Uh, well, with the postage and packing. Sorry, I lost you there, John. Hello. I'm saying, it, yeah, it's been sent. It's sent all over. It's been sent all over the world. But in the UK, uh, inclusive, including postage and packing, it's fifteen quid. Fifteen pounds. There you go, guys. John, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I'm sure our listeners are going to love this because I love how the way you go in, in depth about stuff. It's not just a one word answer. You know, I've I've, I've loved listening to your story. Um, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Um, yeah. I mean, I, listen, yeah. I, 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 I'm guilty of like thinkers when it's like um, being a thing. It's like it's like it's like a massive release with this lockdown. You know, what I mean, you ask me a question, it's like opening a can. It's like opening a can, and all of a sudden, everything I'm going all over the place. You know what I mean? But ho hopefully, oh, no. it's a little snippet like that. You know, people that listen, they might just even if they take one thing from it, then uh, that makes my day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you've certainly made mine, mate. And I'm I'm pretty sure once this nah, once this gets uh, published, once this gets published, that you're going to make a lot of other people's day as well. John, thank you very much, guys. Oh, mate, we'll be back soon. We've got two more interviews this week. One with Andy Scott about his great uncle Chick Knight on the US Sports Show. Also, we've got Mark Beard on, former Millwall and Sheffield United player. Remember to follow us at Cathedral underscore Sport on Twitter. And also follow us on all the platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're here on Anchor as well. Make sure you give us a favourite so you can get all our content as and when it's published. John, again, have a great day, mate. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, not a problem at all. Thank you, John. Cheers, Cheers mate. mate.
Bye bye. Good. Bye. Bye bye.